It's my favorite time of day. This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner of Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. And Luz Marie Freyas is unable to join us today, but I'm happy to say that we have two special guests with us. And often on Counter Stories, we usually cover topics um, that are current and happening, and we usually share our various perspectives from our various communities of color. And often our topics end up uh, talking about racial and social justice, especially um, through the turbulent two, three years that we've been through here. And, um, but our guest, one, one topic that we have not covered on Counter Stories is environmental justice. And so I am very excited about the two guests that we have joining us today. And one of them is Roxanne O'Brien. Roxanne, could you please introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. This is Roxanne. I am a member and co-founder. Um, so one of the founders of Community Members for Environmental Justice, CMEJ. And here with me is someone who helps do the work and a young person I met um, at Juxtaposition Arts. Yeah, hi everyone. I am Justice Jones. Um, I'm an artist and now working with CMEJ, I would call myself an organizer. So Roxanne, you are someone that I have been following on social media for the past four or five years. And I began to realize that the work you were doing, um, the things that you were involved with um, were totally different and something that I guess, you know, I'm, I grew up in North Minneapolis. I went to, and, and when I share that, you know, I grew up on the North side, I went to the old North, you know, we, we tend to make a distinction between the old North and the new North. So I just dated myself, but you know, I went to the old North. I went to Lincoln, I went to Willard and, um, but one of the things, you know, when I, what I remember about North Minneapolis is as we got down toward the river, um, especially between like Plymouth Avenue and going up toward uh, Lowry, there used to be a lot of warehouses up in that, and not just warehouses, but old kind of industrial, uh, just all, you know, stuff that was spewing smoke all the time into the horizon. And I have to admit that, uh, Growing up, we didn't think that much of those type of situations. They were there. They were there before we were there. And and I guess we just kind of figured they were going to be there after we were there. And uh, But you have changed that dynamic. And I'm hoping that you would be able to explain to us what got you involved in environmental justice. Well, thank you. That was um, a great question um, and the way you asked it. But sometimes I find that there aren't really no questions or conversations around how our communities have been dealing with this for so long and like what we've known about it. And really, um, I always have to give it up to my mom, to my mother, who 
I think is really why I am heavily involved in environmental justice. And environmental justice is, it's, it's a big umbrella. Um, I think it's one of the ultimate um, issues that we're facing out here. People, they can't see themselves in environmental injustices until it happens to them, like, or until they're aware, made aware of it for whatever reason. So my mother was a teacher. I was actually born in L.A., um, so I grew up around oil refineries and different buildings that had smokestacks coming out of it and paid no attention to it whatsoever. Um, matter of fact, I lived in Long Beach for a long time and didn't realize that, um, that there was like a whole shipping yard um, there were like all these different things that were being traded all over the world were coming into the Long Beach Pier and like how much pollution and things are occurring there. Like I didn't even realize that as I was living there. I'm just now realizing it as an adult. Well, about 11 years ago, I went through Hope Communities Community Organizing Training called SPEED, hey. which stands yeah. for sustainable progress through engaging active citizens. So that was kind of like, you know, like being unplugged from the matrix a little bit to like to the point where I also got some tools to work with and um, just got a chance to learn from some really dope people. So shout out to Hope Community, which I also work for them. <laughs> so I have an office there. Um but yeah, that's where I started. And now I'm back there 10 years later working for Parks and Power. But it's in alignment with um, environmental justice. It all is. And I, I think what really got me into it was the fact that I found out my community had an industrial area and, and there was a facility called Northern Metals, uh, which there's one in St. Paul. They're throughout the nation. Um, they're owned by a... European company called EMR, a bunch of rich white men, uh, businessmen from there. And it's, it's really like a place where people bring all their cars or tow trucks, you know, junk for cars. They, a lot of metals, people, you know, in the neighborhood collect pop cans and stuff. So there's people who, you know, benefit somewhat financially from bringing their metals into this facility, but the facility's management, they were just messing up. Like I know I normally would curse, but they were just messing up. They were getting real sloppy. They were being really greedy, um, trying to take in so much metal where it was causing fires in our neighborhood on these, these big stacks of metal. And I found out that they wanted to increase the amount of metal that was coming in and the amount of metal that they wanted to shred. They wanted to increase it by a thousand percent. And normally our communities don't get this information, but since I was connected and was building relationships and kind of learning how to be an organizer, I got word one day through an email from a neighborhood organization called Hawthorne in North Minneapolis. And it was just simplifying the information for me on the data sheet. Like I got really mad because you know, they're always pointing the finger at us like we're so violent, you know. And here we are in Hawthorne, the highest rates of lead in the state coming from this pollution facility and coming from, you know, policy, bad policies and bad decisions of our government. And I found out that they wanted to increase that risk by a thousand percent, which meant 
people in communities who were growing vegetables, they would now have a 50% increased chance of getting cancer. Folks who are trying to feed themselves and feed the neighborhood with healthy, organic, you know, locally grown foods were now also at a higher risk of getting cancer or, you know, we are, we are at a higher risk of getting cancer. There's cancer clusters right off Lowry and 2nd Street, North Minneapolis, you know what I mean? So investigate that. So it's like there's a lot of um, things that made me upset. You know, usually people, when they're angry, they do something about it. When we're all sad and depressed about it, you're, you kind of, you know, you get paralyzed emotionally and you can't move. And so I was, I was able to, tra- like, transfer that energy, that anger into doing something about it. And I just basically told everybody, like, y'all know what they're doing out here. Like, and I just kept trying. And I just, you know, it's not the most exciting um, issue to work on for a lot of people, so it was hard. It's still hard to get people to like engage with it because people don't see themselves in this situation, even though our communities are hurt the worst by these types of inequities. So anyway. S- Sister Roxanne, you, you got my inner loose screaming because she's she's a person who would give some 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 context here. So I have some. Uh, at her request. And so you bring up some really interesting points that people may not think about. According to this Minnesota's own um, own uh, uh, public health data, 91% of communities of color have air pollution-related risks above health guidelines in the state of Minnesota. About 54% of people in high-poverty census tracts live within 300 meters of busy roads, and people of color are overrepresented in that in that number. Um, nearly 700 Minnesota children of color have elevated blood lead levels each year. And then this is the one that really gets close to home for me, who have children and nieces and nephews uh, with asthma. Asthma death rates are four times higher for black Minnesotans than for white Minnesotans. So again, in that in this area, as we talk on counter stories about these intersections, the work you are doing is so important. And I don't think that folks pay enough attention uh, to our health outcomes as it relates to uh, the environment before we even get into the conversations about water protection. So I just commend you for the work that you were doing and, and needed to have that, you know, lose, make lose proud with putting some of those numbers in the mix in our conversation. Oh, thank you so much. And I got an incredible team, y'all. Like, like the people, there's a lot of people who don't get, you know, everybody gives me accolades and, you know, I'm, I know that I do good work, but I also know that I would not be able to do it at all if I didn't have people who, man, who like really stand behind me. You know, I get stressed out by the bureaucracy of trying to manage organizing, you know, people and time and, and money. Um, it's not easy. So I, I have a team that seems invisible a lot of times. Um, I think the, the bureaucracy part is the thing that like, I feel like even, even just listening to the steps that it would take to get an issue like this to the lawmakers, like it just frustrates me. You know, I, I can't even think like I would just be like, I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so and that's what most people that's why most people don't start i think that for any subject right like if you're all overwhelmed and you know you're overburdened and you know all the maps are layering in on you you know housing and racism and police brutality and mental health you know 
issues. It's like, you know, the legal justice system, you know, isn't fair. And there's just so many things that hold our communities back or at least put a lot of weight on us to the point where a lot of people are just stuck. And thinking about fighting environmental justice and climate change and, you know, listening about green and clean energy, like nobody has the time for it. You know what I'm saying? And a lot did of you time, get, Did you get any pushback? Like when you were going around North Minneapolis asking about environmental justice? It's, it's, it's just one of those things that's not immediate, right? When you talk about climate justice at, as the total, right? Like it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be your, your child's generation that's going to suffer the most. Did you get any sort of like pushback? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time on this? Yeah, you'd be surprised. Some of the closest people um, when I started doing this work told me that it would never amount to anything <laughs> and that I was given a lot of my time away from my family for, you know, something that wasn't important, you know what I mean? Or, um, you know, I, a lot of people downed me and felt like, you know, like they would label me as um, kind of like a rebel rouser. Like I would get called an agitator a lot, which, you know, I mean, I learned agitation and organizing, but I think a lot of people were just what I, why I knew that the work was important. We don't just do policy and organizing and meetings and you know, litigation, and <laughs> we do garden work. We do a bunch of stuff, but we, I mean, we really are about building relationships with people, right? And meeting them where they're at and trying to figure out where people's, where our interests meet. You know, that's like my job as an organizer. And what I found in this, in this work was that there was not, nothing ultimately more important than water, air, and food and like, I was like, well, you know what I'm saying? All these issues we fighting on, if we don't get this one right, we can just forget about the rest of them. You know what I mean? Like, and if my kids don't have fresh air and water, you know, I'm not about to wait till one of my kids get asthma or get someone in my family gets cancer in order to care. You know, what else would I be doing? Like, what, I'm going to work in the office and make another white man rich? Like, I'm not doing it. You shared that. You were fortunate enough to uh, um, take uh, organizing training, and you know that 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 struck a chord with me because uh, many years ago, when I was much younger, I also was fortunate enough to take community organizing training through a place back then called the uh, Center for Urban Encounters. It was it was uh, modeled on uh, Saul Alinsky's community organizing. So older community organizers will recognize that name, Saul Alinsky. But I was working for an organization at that time called Ramsey Action Programs, which was one of the early war against poverty programs that was started in the late 60s and 70s. What I'm getting at, however, is that being younger and learning about community organizing that there were many things that um, that were a learning curve for me as a young organizer, and I'm a so now I'm a social worker by profession and by by education. I'm a social worker, 
So I have to admit that, you know, some things that you were talking about, most of my emphasis was around the human condition, but it was looking at the issues and it was looking at the impediments that impact individuals and families um, across the board. You mentioned mental health, substance abuse, housing, you know, as a community organizer, as an advocate, as, as a educator, it has been in that arena that I have kind of focused my attention. Yet for you, for some reason, this announcement that Northern Metals was going to increase the amount of uh, particulate emissions that they were going to let loose in North Minneapolis, for whatever reason, rung a chord with you. Because from my understanding, that what you what you talked about, um, you have taken that interest, you have taken that burning desire, and you have you have you had successfully um, got to a place where that Northern Metals actually had to close their location. Isn't that correct? Most facilities that have resistance or get resistance. I mean, the whole point is to kind of make it hard for them. And we definitely were trying to make it hard for them because they were making it hard for us. And that, yeah, they ended up basically giving up because it wasn't worth their time. And it wasn't, you know, they were they were losing money now. They, this place that was making millions of dollars per day um, was no longer doing that because they were actually committing felonies. They were, they were actually going over their limits, which is how they got caught in the first place because they were exceeding the limits and the MPCA told them and said, yo, if you're going to, you know, be increasing these limits, you have to have a permit that says that this is okay. So you have to apply for a permit. And, you know, had there not been any resistance to that permit increase, the MPCA would have gave them the permit. You know what I mean? And that's a problem, right? Like... Justice, is there where you kind of come into the picture? Yeah, I think Northern Metals was one of the first CMEJ projects that I worked on with Rocks. Um, and I sort of came like on the tail end of it because I know that you guys were doing a lot of policy work before. Um, the fight was 10 years long, so but yeah. at that point we were suing them, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's when we started doing protests. We started doing the EJ tours and letting people kind of get off the bus and ask Northern Metals questions, you know, like, why are you here? What are, what are you doing this for? Like, do you see what you're doing? And since we know that you see it, how do you, like, sleep at night, you know? Like, how are you able to live with yourself um, knowing that you're negatively impacting these communities in such a serious way? Um, and what really got me about Northern Metals were the fires that were starting, especially with it being located right next to a gas station. That seemed to me like... A hazard in and of itself, even if the piles weren't too high and even if the pollution wasn't over the limit, um, like it's something that you can't really control. Um, and it frustrated me because I was born in North Minneapolis. I grew up all over Minnesota and moved around a lot, but North Minneapolis was always like a very special place to me, a very special home. Um, and when Roxanne was talking to me about it, you know, it like pissed me off. And when I saw that she was doing something, um, that made me want to do something. And I knew that there was a lot that I could learn from her and have learned from her in the last couple of years. Yeah. 
So, Justice, you you mentioned um, some kind of tours. Um, can you could you talk about that a little bit? Could you explain that to our audience so that they know what your what you and Roxanne are are talking about, or what even uh, us uh, Counter Stories? What tours? Yeah, so our tours that we do, they're environmental justice tours. Um, we have, we've definitely picked up on doing them a little bit more often, but essentially we go around to different um, polluters that are in the North Minneapolis area, different people, different companies who are affecting North Minneapolis. We don't just focus on the bad. We also stop at like juxtaposition arts and talk about the work that they do for community. Um, and we stop at the Terrell Mays Garden, which was um, created for Marsha Mays. Her son Terrell Mays was killed by gun violence and the garden was created in memoriam for him and for her to be able to go to and you know spend time there. Um, we also stop at GAF, which is a major polluter that is near downtown. It's um, right by Burger King, off right by the Lowry Bridge. You can't mm-hmm. miss it, and you can't miss smelling it. Yeah, you definitely are going to smell it. Like it makes whenever we go there on the buses, it makes people cough while they're in the bus with a mask on um, because it's that bad. They're a roofing and shingles company, and then Herc is located closer to downtown near the Twin Center. They do garbage. There's Northern Metals, which is a place that we still stop at, um, and we kind of talk about the work that we did there um, to get them out. Also, the Upper Harbor Terminal is one of the stops that we go to as well. So are these tours still happening? Yeah, so our website is cmejustice.org, and you'll be able to get our information from there, and then we would love if y'all could come and take a tour. That would be awesome. You know, I I got to... I got to go on one of the tours with um, the Minnesota Council of Churches had a, uh, along with the Lutheran Synod in Minneapolis, had a water, um, a group of folks who are organizing around water issues um, and a kind of a water task force. And we got several of the clergy got to go um, and and, and stop by. And and on this space, what we learned was um, in the zip code area around Northern Meadows that had the highest rates of asthma hospitalizations in the state. You know what? What boggled me about the data that you you were giving out is this wasn't just, you know, we always think of of pollution in the macro scale, um, but you could literally see the proximity, uh, the the data for the health outcomes in proximity uh, to these major polluters. Um, and and there you you said that they're not the only ones, but but you know, and their shredder was shut down, and we shut that piece down, but but there's still um there's still work to be done, and there's still health outcome data uh, that is that is still making it difficult. Uh, you know, and so in your policy fight, one of my questions and wonderings is, I, I just want to know how that's going. You have uh, proposed policy changes at both the city and the state level, which include uh, you know, deepening the power of the MPCA. Um, and the, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency and the Department of Health to be able to to crack down. But you, it struck me what you said, that if you didn't have the pushback, you're saying, what I heard you say earlier is that in, the MPCA probably would have given them the permit had you not gotten involved. And so I just, I'm, I'm curious how, uh, what, what are some of the things that you all are working on now to really keep this fight going in order to, um, I don't know, in order to bring these bad actors to light? Because it seems like folks have, you know, have a, are getting a license to just do whatever they want and it's impacting our communities. Right. I'm glad you asked that because 
we're about to start a campaign to push for a city's, or you might hear it said as municipal, it's just another word for city, a municipal cumulative impact ordinance. Because it's, it's not possible to keep going after these um, bad actors, you know, one by one. Um, I don't have another 10 years to like go after one. <laughs> and I think we need stronger policies so that we can also actualize some of the other um, written language policies that have no teeth, like the Green Zones Ordinance, which I also was a part of. And yeah, so a lot of folks have been pushing these things forward, but the city and the states have um, a lot of pushback and they don't, there's no um, real requirement for them to follow even their own values of what they said that they wanted to commit to. Um, there's, there's nothing that would regulate the green zone. So accumulative impact policy would do just that. It would actually put some teeth into um, what the requirements would be in order for facilities to operate or move into our communities. So like it would, the cumulative impact is like the entire effect, right? Like the whole toxic soup of all of it mixed together, layer and layer on top of that, on top of racism, on top of you know, housing issues. It's like, yo, we can't take any more burden. You know what I mean? And you're going to have to look into that before you develop something that could harm us more. And in some places, they are looking to even address facilities that have been around for a long time. Um, there are a lot of laws that are in place to protect these facilities, like grandfathering. This cumulative impact ordinance would address some of these issues. And so um, there's cities like or Newark, New Jersey, Los Angeles, California, Chicago's working on one, and Philadelphia. So these are cities that are all working on them and have kind of laid the blueprint or the, you know, the way for us. And so we're definitely looking to them and other communities that are going through this so that we can work together. So it's definitely going to be a lot of work. It's probably going to be a two to three year campaign. Basically, it's, it's a city law that would address the combined impact of multiple pollution sources because that's what's the cumulative impact. Small parts of South Minneapolis have one. Even then, you know, they're still fighting over issues like Roof Depot and um, the water yard coming into their community. So we're also in solidarity with the South Side and what they're going through. So, so Anthony, you had mentioned that you had gone on one of these tours. Um, was there any discussion? I mean, the, the organizations you went with are fairly white organizations. W was there any discussion about race? Because I think sometimes when people, first of all, when they think about environmental justice, they don't think that people of color give a care, I'll say. <laughs> um, and then secondly, you know, just this really important fight with one big company and just the success you guys had with that. Like, Anthony, was there any discussion that you guys had on that bus about race? 
Well, yeah, the whole the whole point of the group that was together was specific to the intersection of race, um, in particular in terms of water. We had just gotten back from talking with Flint Flint water protectors, um, and so um, we had we had just got back from visiting some of the frontline folks at Flint and the in the churches that were doing some organizing around there, um, and many of these churches and their communities and who serve uh, congregations of color. I don't know. Many of them have 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 quite a few folks of color in their in their in their churches, and they had just got done doing uh, lead water testing in some of their churches, and some of the findings that they came back with um, were were absolutely concerning. So the whole conversation was centered around the intersection of race and water justice, in particular, um, everything from education to what's happening in the homes, and that's just an aspect, right? We've been talking about the air pollution that some of these bad actors have, and in, in the work that you're doing with CMEJ. Um, but one of the things that we are um, that 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 we were there for was specifically to look at that intersection, and it's it's an intersection that that covers and connects to quite a few things. For example, um, if I'm overrepresented in the areas that are most proximity, right? I, I um, if if the depreciated values, um, the 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 history the history of redlining and all these things that concentrate race and poverty. In, in areas that are more susceptible to these pollution uh, spaces and have less of the political power, right? So um, if you notice, one of the things that we just looked at is you pull out a map and you'll notice that high polluters are are quite frequently in more, in places where there's going to be less uh, uh, power and money pushback, <laughs> right? Uh, areas, uh, 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 bad actors like we've talked about here, they're just not going to to be able to get a foothold in a place like Wyzetta or in a place like Edina, right? And we have to call the question. So that was also part of our conversation too, um, is that is that how do we marshal the, the political protection and will for folks from areas that are more vulnerable to um, to to bad actors like this? So all of that was on the table as we were having some of those conversations. You know, Anthony, it also fits the uh, pattern of where many of these type of things um, happen in urban areas, but happen also in in various communities throughout the United States. And what I'm getting at is, because you mentioned not only these industrial sites, but, you know, I grew up in North Minneapolis when they put the freeways through when they built 94, when they built 35. And they put those through the heart, uh, often, of our communities. We're all familiar with where um, 94 went through the, you know, broke apart Rondo in St. Paul. But it had similar impacts in North Minneapolis when you look at where they put the freeways. It didn't displace the industrial sites, but it did displace housing that um, all along those freeways. So historically, and when we look at urban areas throughout this country, those freeways were placed through all the communities of color. Um, And there's a pattern there that we can see across the country. When we look at where they're now placing these pipelines, right? These pipelines are avoiding white towns and white communities, but they're intersection, they're intersecting and going through the tribal communities in North and South Dakota and Minnesota. So we are having a similar type pattern with the oil pipelines that are being laid um, and how they are impacting uh, tribal reservations. We can also look at nuclear power plants and we can look at where they mine 
um, uranium, and you're going to find that many of those plants, even here in Minnesota, if you go down to, you know, everyone associates uh, the Dakota Reservation with uh, the casinos. So if you go down to Treasure Island, there is a nuclear power plant less than, I think, a half mile uh, um, from that reservation. So we see these similar type patterns play out um, throughout the country. You know, we always, especially w when we get into areas like these these industrial sites, much like we do with uh, treatment programs, when we want to open up a new a new treatment program in the state of Minnesota, nobody wants that in their backyard, right? So it's much like Roxanne's talking about communities and what you mentioned, and communities that have less political clout um, tend to be the areas where these things show up. Or more and, political corruption. Well, you know, and that's something I think that you can talk about because you've been engaged in this work. And so I know that you mentioned that, you know, you bump into systemic racism as you're engaged in this work. And uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, uh, Roxanne. Yeah, I, you know, every day I uncover something more and go down the rabbit hole even deeper. It's crazy. <laughs> but... I wanted to say, as we were talking about the freeways, you know, where they were put in like 1968, um, all across the nation, they were being built. The plan for that was done by a HUD and like, you know, a lot of real estate agents. There's there's something still very racist and big happening with housing and we all know it. Um, so I think it's great to bring up like the freeways because um, that's one example of how property values go down when they're close to freeways and um, also pollution facilities. Um, also, you know, I'm finding out more and more things about, um, you know, the park board and a lot of things to that that people should really pay attention to. Um, so you'll probably hear me talk more about that, more with my works with Parks and Power. But I wanted to real quick because um, I want to make sure people get this information. This is very important. We need people's help on this cumulative impact ordinance. It can help build a lot of power in communities if we pass it. So I just want to say what we're looking to do in our engagement with folks and community is basically talk about, about seven different things. So existing conditions, you know, what's the current pollution level and its impact, um, environment, particulate matter, traffic pollution, hazardous sites, proximity, et cetera, As, um, health, so asthma, cancer risk, heart disease, et cetera, social, so other factors, income, race, affecting community health. Um, number two, we want to do like comparative, talk about comparative analysis. So how does this pollution compare with other neighborhoods? Number three, we want to talk about risk reduction. This is all a part of the cumulative impact ordinance. How to lower existing pollution, how to deal with polluting facilities that are already in community, and who has power, jurisdiction, over what? And what does the city have power over? Number four, we want to talk about new pollution, how to deal with new polluting activities. When a new polluting facility is proposed, and when an existing facility business wants to expand its operations. Five, we want to talk about benefits. In addition to minimizing harm, 
How can deeper restoration happen? How can fines, fees, resources benefit the community? Housing, food, solar, etc. Green businesses. Community voice, number six. How can community leadership be centered? What does meaningful community participation look like? How should a community-based organization be defined? And seven, accountability. How can the city be transparent and responsible to the community? Which city departments should be held responsible? And how will the community have oversight and power? So those are some of the things that the cumulative impact ordinance can address. And again, we're going to need all the support that we can get. Um, and this is a way to also help protect our communities and build more power together, um, whether it's a development or a pollution facility. This cumulative impact ordinance can answer a lot of questions and do a lot of things. When we are people who maybe don't have the time or knowledge to attack large issues in the environment, right? There are things that we can do within our own communities that may not be shutting down a giant manufacturer, but affects the health of our immediate environment. One of the things that always annoyed me was um, when you go to places like uh, Hmong Town or Hmong Village and you're getting takeout food, it's always styrofoam. Mm. Always. Even sometimes if you're, you're like, I'm just going to sit here and eat, you'll get it in styrofoam. You know, and it's, and it's one of those things where it always bugs me. There are things that you can co compost and you get takeout. But the hard part with those is those are more expensive. And when you're a mom and pop shop and you are renting out a stall somewhere, you don't have the budget to buy those expensive containers. So it's like making an effort to try to stop that. I do it within my own family. Whenever we have a get-together, I always say I'll do plates and bowls and I'll do silverware. And I always get the compostable kind because I know that if somebody else did it, they would go to Target and what do they have there, right? All the plastic stuff. So what are things that we can do within our own communities that help the cause even if it's not on such a scale? Yeah, I think it's really about kind of what you just said, recognizing those places in your everyday life where you could be having an impact on the environment. And kind of when you learn things about environmental justice and about how we exist in these spaces with everything that's happening environmentally right now, I think really just sharing that information with people and then letting them make their own decisions about what they want to do too. I also think like as individuals, it's not really on us to stop with like, you know, using styrofoam and things like that. I think it's really on. It needs to not be produced. Mm. Compostable things need to be made in a way that's accessible right. for people to access. Mm -hmm. um, they shouldn't be more expensive. You know, I get like process of making things and the economy and everything like that. But it really is up to these major companies and these major folks. Um, I also like... I don't know, I guess I could mention another thing that CMEJ has done. Sometimes it really is just about raising awareness to things that um, exist. So we just recently created these sustainable bags. Um, and in those bags, we have things like cloth diapers, um, menstrual cups, 
water straws that purify the water so that you can drink it. Um, we put those together, and then on the cards we that are inside the bags, we write kind of like, you know, these can be helpful with this. This is how you clean them. This is how you take care of them. Using bar soap over, like, plastic bottles of, like, body wash, you know, things like that. Um, and once... A lot of times people don't want to, like, try the sustainable thing because they think that it is going to be... Um, like it'll fall apart or it's not going to work as well. And so part of what CMEJ tried to do was kind of provide those things so you don't have to go out of your way and buy them to test it out. You can kind of just see, are these going to work for me? Do I think I really can use cloth diapers instead of disposable ones? Or like people think it's kind of like nerdy. Because mm-hmm. like I'm at an air, I'm at an airport and I'm at the bar before my flight and I ordered a drink and I was like I don't want a straw and I took out of my bag a metal straw that I carry yeah. and I was traveling with like extended family and they were all just like what do you you just carry that with you everywhere and I was like well yeah you guys like it's not a huge thing it's mm-hmm. not a huge inconvenience to me to take this to the restroom after and wash it and then use it again later. Yeah. You know, so it's like these little things that sometimes people are just like, why? And they say, oh, you think that you're going to make a difference because you're one person mm-hmm. using one reusable straw. Yeah, you but know? then like if I saw you at the airport pulling out your reusable straw, I might be more inclined to pull mine out. Like, you know, right. I might feel a little bit more excited about <laughs> it. So it is like, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's equally important. For us so to do that. I want to jump in real quick. So, Roxanne, you talked of you 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 gave six, seven points on this new ordinance. Is that something that the citizens of Minneapolis get to vote on? I mean, so so how does this change come about? I'm also learning in this process. I wasn't trained to do campaigns, so I'm definitely tapping into all the support systems I have on this one. And being more intentional around um, calling upon everybody we've ever built a relationship with for the past 10 years. So we're definitely going to be putting in our all into this one. I am unaware of like what it takes to actually put something onto a ballot. I know there are plenty, plenty, uh, plenty of organizations that do know how to do that. Okay. I know, I think you need like a bunch of signatures if you right. want to actually change um something or be able to vote on something um, for like rent control, for example. So, I mean, so is that what you're attempting to try to do? Or is this something that just goes in front of the um, Minneapolis City Council? It will. The City Council will first vote and the mayor will too. And so what we have to do as communities is everybody kind of has to take, you know, initiative within their own initiative or within their own organization or within their own personal body to, um, you know, set up maybe meetings with public officials in your own district um, and just say, yo, we're in support of this cumulative impact ordinance um, with CMEJ. I mean, we haven't even crafted the bill yet. We have our lawyers working on crafting the actual language and policy form, but we don't want to move without having these conversations with community members first. So we know that it's going to be a two to three year campaign unless, you know, community just, you know, does something different this time. I'm not sure. 
Um, but I know for us, we're definitely going to be working with community to get the community power. I'm glad um, you gave us this opportunity because I didn't want to miss it. I wanted to let people know we're out here and we're coming and we need some support and reach out to us if you think you want to help out with this because really sometimes we have to you know, come together as a coalition of people um, in, in orgs and just say you know, that we're going to fight something, fight for something that is meaningful for our communities. And we think this is pretty meaningful. And yeah, I mean, the green industry is a trillion dollar industry. So I've always thought about that in the sense of, you know, the economic exploitation that happens to our communities. Um, This is a great issue to jump on so that we start to create the future that we want I know you hear a lot about wind and solar all the time, but green the green industry is a trillion dollar industry and it's based on your your health wealth. You know what I mean? Like how is our health doing? And how do we move into the future? How do we transition into this industry that is um, more humane and more respectful and honors, you know, the earth and indigenous practices and indigenous people and and African people and immigrant people and like we poor people we really got to stick together on this and middle class people got to help and you know what I mean like it's a it's a systemic issue and it's a capitalist issue and it's a it's classism oppression like one-on-one but we you know I think we got this I think it's important to acknowledge that the last maybe 10, 15 years, there's been real focus on water, you know, with what happened in Flint, you know, and Mm -hmm. then Standing Rock. But it's like it's a we have to remember that it's more than just water, right? Not to take away from the water movement, because that's so important, too. It's like we got to remember that these are all natural elements that work together, right? Right. That Mother Earth, you know, gives us that we need to preserve and, and and do it across the board as much as we can. Yeah, a lot of people used to say, oh, she works on air quality. They would introduce me all the time. Oh, she works on air quality and air quality and air quality. And I'm like, you know, there's a real thin line between air and water and soil and food. And like, you know, all these places are on the river corridor. They're on parcels of land on Mississippi. And that's our drinking water source. And about time the river meets... You know, North Minneapolis and St. Anthony Falls, it no longer meets livable standards. And so we have got to change that and we've got to change our course and people have got to start paying attention and they have got to start doing something because you can't work a job, you can't own a home, you can't go on vacation, you can't get that bag if you don't have water and you can't breathe, like, and you can't have food. There's the industrial food complex that we don't talk about, the subsidies that these corporations are getting from the federal farm bill. And it's like, yo, we're out here, a bunch of moms on the front lines because we've got kids and we've got families and we got babies and we know how important this is. And we need other people to recognize um, that they have power. And it doesn't, re- doesn't matter what you know or what you don't know, just get involved and and, and do something. You can do something. You don't have to feel like you have to do everything, but everybody can do something, you know? You know, this is uh, one of the things I loved in, in the um, TPT um, uh, video 
that was done about the work and especially about the work um, around the Northern Metals issue, you know, one of the things and organizing principles that we, you know, that we're trained on when we take these 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 things is is the the idea of trying to figure out how to get folks onto the issue, right? How to on ramp folks into there, right? It's hard it's hard for me to get really energetic and motivated unless I can see my way into it. And we've seen that, um, you know, in uh, there was a there was a round at air pollution um, in the in the late seventies, stemmed of course by California, but but some of that conversation was had in Minnesota. There was another round um, that started to look at um, what was happening with 3M and the lawsuits that happened with 3M in the state of Minnesota, and we're looking at our soil. And then we've got, of course, uh, the pipelines and the water protection pieces. Right? We we don't operate in an all or nothing. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. And every time you know we see that an issue is motivating folks. We try to help get them on 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 board. The air pollution uh, uh, work on the north side is definitely one that brought in there. Um, the water uh, group that I was working with, uh, we started with water, but we would find that because folks were able to grab onto that because it hit close to home, we were able to then bring in other conversations. And so I'm just curious, you know, what are some of the intersections that you all? are helping folks to make bridges to. You talked a little bit about, you know, the, on the garden side of things, but but where do you see folks really it clicking for folks, these intersections as they they jump onto to one issue that's very close to home? Well, we do we do have this garden that we're working on um, bringing more into it, making it like an outdoor classroom for conversations like this during the summer. So we kind of do work in a seasonal way. Like we're now going into more policy work now, which will probably be on Zoom a lot, um, but we will have in-person events. And so violence is an issue in general in this nation. It, it started out very violently. So, um, But I think the narrative is that our communities are more violent and it's not true. Um, we we have internalized a lot of violence. And so like building the garden was about creating a safe space. It's really like a small pocket park because we don't have a lot of vegetables yet because we're still working with the neighbors. They're like, yo, we don't want a bunch of mice running around. So, but we, so we're trying to like, you know, do what we can as we're starting it. It was the main thing just for a space for Marsha to come every year on Terrell Mays' birthday on July 29th. And to, you know, give respects to him and his spirit um, and also to remember and hopefully, you know, get some one day somebody will maybe say what happened and give, um, you know, this mother some peace of mind. Terrell Mays uh, was a young child of Marsha Mays who was murdered. He was shot. He was in his house. Gunfire was happening outside. Our communities are grieving nonstop. With violence, but we, that's not the main issue in our community. We've we've got a lot of violence coming from different places, which is why we work on pollution reduction harm, because policy can be violent, and so and also police are violent, and so it was really a space. Marsha said she wanted a space for all families who have been impacted by gun violence. I know she has a personal relationship with Philando Castile's mom, and. Um, I know I have a connection with um, Diamond Reynolds, the girlfriend of Philando Castile. We were wanting to make sure that, and to inform people that, you know, the narrative about us that they try to tell us 
it's made for us to feel guilty and ashamed and like, oh, you're dying anyway and you're smoking cigarettes and you're drinking and you're shooting at each other. And you know what I mean, it's black on black, but it's like, it's a lie. And people hurt people in their proximity. I find more leadership in people who are angry and people who are experienced it. I also think it's really important to understand that like violence in our community is just really like a symptom of the environment. Um, and it's not, we really need to think about what the root cause of it is. And the root cause of it is, you know, that North Minneapolis is a food desert. People don't have access to food. People are hungry. You're more likely to do something to get food if you're hungry, you know? Like you're more likely to, if I don't have access to certain things that I need to meet my basic needs, there are going to be some things that I do and there's this illusion that people have a choice all the time and it's not necessarily a choice. Sometimes it really is about environment. And so environmental justice is about more than just like pollution and more than just, you know, like... Because then you're like... You're more likely to not eat healthier foods because right. you can't afford the healthier foods. You're gonna end up going to the dollar menu at McDonald's, and yeah. then in a really you're good foster What's in your environment? Which we don't. You can see up down Broadway. What's in our environment? We got there's Broadway. five chicken spots all right next to each other, <laughs> and nothing else to eat. Like, and all these are political ties that are you know they're violent in our communities, but um, you know there's corruption involved where. Money is more important than people's lives. And, you know, we actually, I went out to the block, like, the night a bunch of people got shot. I went out there before, though, because I don't believe in just showing up when there's tragedy, which, you know, there's a lot of people show up when the tragedy occurs. And sometimes that's what it takes for people to join together and to support each other. You could see that from the tornado that hit in 2011. A lot of us was, like, really supporting each other when, when the tornado came and wiped, went through there, but, you know... I think, you know, connecting with people where they're at, to bring it back to how do we connect with folks, you know, we go out there. We gave a tour, actually, to young men on the block. We went and picked them up in a big old Benz, one, a Benz bus, mm-hmm. one whole thing, one day. It was nice. It was fancy. Fed them, <laughs> fed them really healthy food from revolutionary catering. It was, like, vegan, and there was vegan options, so we fed everybody in the parking lot. We fed everybody on the bus. We gave out gift cards for their time. Um, and yeah, so now because of those relationships that we built, I still go out there. I think I just passed out maybe 20 emergency preparedness bags the other night. Like the, I was out there for a couple of nights cause I'm always trying to get them to tap in. I'm like, yo, it's a trillion dollar industry. Like tap in. Like if, if money is your thing, like, you know, let's do it or let's, let's, what other skills do you have? What do you, what would you do if you weren't out here on the block? Do you want to? You know, do you need some help? And a lot of them actually were talking like, yeah, we want to know, you know, like maybe how to start the business. Like they're already doing businesses, but they might not have all their, you know, legal documents aligned. And so I actually got some folks, we're going to go back out there, um, some folks that are part of our coalition, Princess um, from Standard Women Edition. She's a member of our team, Danielle Swift. Um, from Frogtown Neighborhood Association. She's a member of our team. She talks about development without displacement. And um, I basically said, well, do you mind if we come out there and do some workshops and I just bring a bunch of people and somebody will talk about business and somebody will talk about, you know, and I was like, see, MJ, we'll pay for it if you, want to, you guys want to get your license at the state. So we're in conversation with a bunch of folks trying to make it happen right now um, because the ways that we've been doing work with community is more about shaming people and, 
you know, blaming people for their conditions. And that's, that's what the system wants us to do, is to blame everybody for the conditions that they put in place. There are many intersections when I, as I was listening to this and, and the, this, the discussion kind of centered and moved around the fact that none of these things are isolated kind of issues or isolated um, items that happen in our communities and that they're, they're all interrelated. But yet in the dominant culture, the dominant culture has a tendency to kind of separate and want to put these these different issues and items in their own lane, in their own single lane. But from the communities that we come from, these are all interrelated. They're they're you know as an indigenous individual, you know, it's part of the circle of the, the the circle of life, and that's what I hear um, as we talk about this issue and and. It's so interrelated. It's it, there's so many things happening here, and and I think you know one of the things is you, I I agree with you, Roxanne, that you know the way uh, media, the way certain stories are portrayed about our community, tends to center around the violence. But yet, when we look at the interrelatedness between these uh, industrial sites that pollute, that put things in the air, that actually have a actually as you you know with some of the stats that you related to us actually impact our communities with deaths at a higher rate than what we get bombarded with in terms of what we see on TV in terms of the shootings and I'm not downplaying the shootings the shootings are bad but when we look at these things you know it's all interrelated and the fact that you know I am so happy that you you uh, joined us today for for counter stories. I think that you know we might have to have you back again because I I felt that we were finally getting to a place where this stuff was coming together and and there was a lot of area in there for us to explore and to discuss. But um, it's kind of like tales from the hood. Like we could totally make a part. Two, you know, a real part two, because I don't know if y'all right. seen part two. <laughs> right, it was horrible. Exactly. <laughs> and I also wanted to comment that that it takes, I believe, it takes extraordinary individuals to champion causes like this when so many of us, you know, are see these things happening around us, but with the, the you know, the the busyness in our lives and with all these other things happening, um, some of these things, many of these things slide through the cracks, but it didn't slide through the crack for you. And for that, I am so gracious because a champion like you brings this to the forefront for the betterment of us all, even though many of us ignore it and may not even be aware of it. This is Counter Stories. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. And our two special guests. I'm Roxanne O'Brien with Community Members for Environmental Justice and just an activist everywhere, kind of. Yeah, I'm Justice Jones with Community Members for Environmental Justice. I'm an artist, a teacher, and an organizer. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, 
diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. With support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>